It's time to craft your winning plan. You're listening to Scaling Up with host Tim Maitland, where industry experts in sales and business deliver the insights you need to step up your game. Let's scale up. Welcome to another episode of Scaling Up. I'm your host, Tim Maitland, and thank you so much for tuning in for what will be yet again another great episode. You know, today we're talking about something that I take a lot of passion in uh, because it's exactly what I do. It's helping brands in the B2B world go direct to their audience. You know, we have to think about ourselves, right? What do we do in our free time? We get content streamed directly to us almost every minute of the day. And we're crazy to think in B2B that when our customers come in to work every single day and they're looking to make purchasing decisions or they're looking to make investments that they want to be fed white papers, they want to be fed case studies. As a company to grow today, you must be able to have your own media channels, your own podcast, your own live events, and you need to be able to broadcast that directly into the eyes and ears of your target audience. You know, if we think about it, thinking of our personal life, you know, a story that I think rings true in so many ways uh, that is is relevant to this digital transformation topic we're going to have today is the story of Blockbuster and Netflix. You know, we I think we all remember Blockbuster, especially if you're my age. You used to love it. You'd, you'd hop in the car, you'd, you'd drive 10 minutes to the store and you'd run around and, and you'd read the back of the DVD case and you'd go to the video game area and you'd, you'd beg your mom or dad for uh, candy and then you'd leave and, and you'd pop that VHS or that DVD into uh, you know the player and from there you'd watch content. Now, Blockbuster, they had a very clear decision to make. As Netflix was uh, popping up and, and focusing more on, on digital streaming, Blockbuster, they had the juggernaut name, they had the brand recognition, they had the scale, they had the money. And all they had to do was really digitalize what they were doing. Instead of allowing people to have to pick up content at a store, let it just go seamlessly right there into the household without ever having to leave. Now, Blockbuster, they made a mistake. They made the mistake of thinking that everybody would not turn in the experience of meeting neighbors, of reading the back of DVD cases, of having that family time of going to the store and coming back. And what they didn't bet that us as people, we cared more about our time and we would rather sit in a bathrobe, eat a tub of ice cream and watch content on demand right there from hitting three buttons in about 30 seconds and not running into those neighbors that we don't like, not getting into that cold car and, and driving eight minutes. And it's the direct idea of as a company, you must be able to go direct to your audience. People must be able to stream your thought leadership. So today, I'm so very excited about our guest to talk about this. Uh, he is a true digital leader. He's got CMO and executive experience at GE, as well as some very industrial companies like FlowServe and Seco. He's currently the vice president at Vixo, which is a very powerful facilities management company, and he really needs no introduction. So let's go ahead and bring him on, Mike McCauley. Mike, how are you today? Tim, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Really excited about this. Hey, when I uh, wanted to talk about this topic, I, I reached out to one person and uh, it was you. So I'm honored that you're on here today and I'm so excited for everybody uh, to be able to learn from you and uh, you know all your input and uh, your leadership. You've brought the digital marketing world the last you know two decades. So I, I hope you didn't just set the bar too high, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm humbled that you would think that way and excited to have the conversation. 
Hey, it's impossible to set the bar too high with you, but... Tim, correct me if I'm wrong. You're a Longhorn guy, right? I am a Longhorn guy, yes. In March Madness, how far do you think the Longhorns are going to make it? Gosh, the fan in me wants to say the final four and then anything can happen there. The realist in me is going to say we're going to lose in the Sweet 16. Um, so, it pains me. It pains me to say that, but I'll I'll put it on the records. We're we're going to lose in the Sweet 16. I I did. I had two brackets, and I had one with my heart and one with my head. And I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but I I believe that the Longhorns are probably have the best shot of any number three wow. seed to make it to the final four. Wow. And if, you've given me a hard time on the Longhorns before, so that this yeah, means th- this might be the the pick of the bracket because you're not I, a Longhorn guy. I'm not. I'm not at all. But they've got to make it past the first round. I think they also have the highest likelihood of being upset in the first round of a three seed. ACU <laughs> has got a special team. Their, their defense really is furious. Team. Their defense is furious, and they're going to play with nothing to lose. I'm. We've got a uh, wildcat here at market scale, and uh, he's reminded me all week about this matchup. So uh, I think I'm going to be sitting on the edge of my seat tomorrow night. <laughs> uh, what do you say we start this uh, show off with a fun game? I, I like games. So uh, you want to play? I'm in. All right. All right. I don't have a name for the game. I'll, we'll just call it this or that for a, a lack of better name. But the rules of this, it, it's pretty easy. I'm, I'm going to name two companies together, Mike. Uh, and the two companies are going to be very similar. And they're going to be companies that you and your household probably relied on a lot this last year uh, in this remote world that we lived in, in this connected world that we live in, in the digital realm. So I'm going to name two companies each. There's going to be a total of eight of them. And as fast as you can, you pick the answer of uh, what was most critical for your survival of the last year. So you ready? Let's go. All right. YouTube or Spotify? Uh, Spotify. Netflix or Hulu? Hulu. Uber Eats or Grubhub? Neither. Ooh. Microsoft Teams or Zoom? Zoom. Oh, no, Teams. It, it started <laughs> Zoom and it went to Teams. There you go. The switcheroo. TikTok or Instagram? The Gram. The Gram. Apple TV or Fire Stick? Apple TV. Amazon or Walmart? Amazon by far. FaceTime or Skype? FaceTime. All right. There we go. I, I was shocked. Spotify over YouTube. So you're a music guy. What do you What do you listen to? Classic rock or? I listen to a little bit of everything, but I got into podcasts. Ah, Yes. And and so that was the reason I went there. But um, the reality is between these different ones, you know, we went back and forth on on all of them. So it was it was great. And then, uh, you know, when you were talking about uh, just the difference between Grubhub or Uber Eats, right? Obviously, we ended up in, and went with DoorDash. Mm, there you go. The third option. <laughs> Should have put yeah. that in there. Sorry, DoorDash. <laughs> good stuff yeah well thank, thanks for playing I, I sided with uh, nearly all of you on those uh, except uh, YouTube over Spotify I, I love Spotify I'm a power user I got to listen to my Beatles and the Stones but uh, I could go down a YouTube wormhole as as, uh, as well as anybody so uh, yeah I've done a lot of that the last year well, it's you know what I'd be remiss if I didn't say I got into woodworking this year through YouTube, so I wow. I did get my fair to fair share of YouTube in. There you go, there you go. It's a great resource, and it's actually kind of good topic too for what we're talking about today. You know, it's pretty incredible. You know, here you are. You know, you're a, a business executive and 
Dallas Fort Worth area and you know you're able to learn woodworking uh, from remote learning right it's a perfect example of why companies need to be able to create content to go to direct for their audience because there's an audience for almost everything and uh, if you can't you know teach your your clients or your customers in a digital way you're really missing out so what, what a good perfect example you brought up just naturally at the start of this conversation what a brilliant segue have you done this before <laughs> So, um, you know, Mike, co companies hear a lot today about the digital transformation, right? They, they hear in B2B, you got to digitally transform. You got to do more of what B2C companies are doing. You know, if, if you can't shake your customer's hand, you got to be able to virtually meet them. And sometimes it can be intimidating. Sometimes it can be too much. Sometimes it just doesn't seem like it's worth it, worth the trouble to learn or worth the, the resources to do. Now, um, you know, it, it's my belief, and I think it's a lot of uh, B2B marketers' belief that, you know, digital uh, is the frontier that they need to go, right? I, I like to think in 1997, people were always saying, why do we need a website? Why do we need to do this? I, I, I have a trade show booth we, that we set up. I have our company office. Why do we need a website? And now I think you hear a lot of marketers saying, wait, why do we need to do our own live events? Why do we need to do podcasts? Why do we need to have, you know, on-demand video streaming? And it's kind of that that breaking point. So, you know, first off, when people hear digital transformation, you know, what what does that mean? If you could body that term up into a, a definition, how would you describe it? So when you think about who we engage with, I think about them in three tranches. I think about them in the retirement generation, the bridge, and the replacement generation. And the easiest way to think about it is there's digital foreigners. Those are the people that are in their early to late 60s. They're still in the workforce. They're still decision makers and things, but they came into that they were mid-career when the whole internet came on the scene, right? Um, and then you have digital foreigners. Think about digital foreigners as people that were in their mid-teens to early 30s when the internet came in, right? They adopted it. It became part of what they did. They thought it was cool. Everything was great. But then you've got the digital natives, the people that just do it inherently. It's part of what they do. Multitasking, engaging on a phone, an iPad, a tablet, a screen, whatever it is, they're it's easy. It's it's just natural to them. And so when I think about the people that we're engaging, it's a question of how do I want to engage? And so digital transformation from a decision-making standpoint within our customers depends on who's making that decision and how they get that information. So if I'm talking to a digital foreigner, they, they're all about interpersonal relationship first. And eh, I may go check you out, um, digitally. Whereas if I'm talking to somebody in that bridge gap, right, um, that, that intermediate, they're going to be a blend of interpersonal trust first and digital trust first. But if I'm talking to a digital native, it's all about digital trust first. I don't want to talk to somebody until I've done all the research, everything else, and then I may talk to you. You know, that is such a great point. You know, the buyer journey has totally changed, right? It, it used to be relationship-based selling, right? It used to be, hey, let's go golfing. You know, I want to take you to dinner. I want to provide a good experience. And the reason why is if a customer needed any sort of question answer, they had to rely and trust 
that salesperson, right? So you had to build the relationship, w- w- which built trust. You bring up such a good point there. The way you build trust in, in today's world is you become a bigger educator, right? You answer people's questions on their own time. You you allow your brand to be found where they are. And now that they've had a good experience learning from you, now they're going to be much more likely to reach out. They're going to be much more likely to have that conversation with the sales team. And now as long as they get some further questions answered and a good experience with that sales rep, they're most likely going to work with you because they see you as not just a great solution, but also an educational resource that's helping them in their buyer's journey and their career. Oh, absolutely. Right. I can't tell you the number of mentors that I've had in my career that referred to a brochure as the silent sales or a catalog <laughs> as the silent salesperson. Right. That's good. The the digital presence, your content that's out there is your silent salesperson now. It's your catalog of 20 years ago. Right? It's always there and it's always available. It's got to be, to your point, exact you hit it the nail on the head. It's got to be where they are when they want it. Exactly. Omni-channel. And, you know, B2B, you know, they don't need to be so slow to uh, adopt this, right? And, and, and the reason why I say this, what do we do in our personal life, right? You know, think about it. We, we watch TV totally different today than we did years ago. We don't turn on the TV and, you know, go to Dish or, uh, you know, basic cable and go to channel, you know, the TBS channel on 39 or whatever it is. We simply, you know, turn on our Apple TV like you picked in our game earlier. We pick Netflix, we stream content on demand, we watch a few episodes and we go for watching, you know, the news or live sports. We're probably streaming that too on demand on on something like Sling. And I think we're crazy to think in B2B that, you know, our customers in their everyday life are streaming content. They're listening to podcasts to feed their hobbies. And then we think when they come into the office the next day that they want technical white papers, they want technical case studies, meet them where they are in their personal life. And and something like a podcast, for example, isn't that mind blowing to them because they're feeding their hobbies with it. What if you're a company that provides that learning experience on a channel that they're already so used to in their personal life? How much more affinity will they have with their brand? I, I think it's game changing. Oh, without a doubt. And I think, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions out there is that a B2B buyer is just a logical animal. They're not. They're a human just like anyone else. And if you think they check their emotions and their their habits at the door when they walk into their office or now when they walk in, you know, to their kitchen table, right, um, with COVID, they haven't. Those habits haven't changed and their expectations of their service providers, their partners, their um, their vendors has only gone up. They bring the consumer mindset exactly right where they are to that B2B buying table. They just don't articulate it. And I think it actually makes the game that much harder in a B2B world. And when I say harder, maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. But the reality of it is you have to have a logical reason that where you can prove, right, tangibly how your product, your offering, your service helps them make more money than the next best alternative, right? Whether it's doing it themselves or with a direct competitor or some other type of substitute offering, you've got to be able to prove that. That's table stakes. But the other thing that you've got to do is you've got to make them feel good about it. And the way you make them feel good about it is going right back to what you were talking about. It's that omni-channel piece. It's that notion that they believe that you are an expert in the field and that they're not going to have to justify their decision. Exactly. And I think what 
you know, COVID has done the last year. It has opened the eyes of businesses that they don't have to spend, you know, six figures to be at all those trade shows. They don't have to get their sales team on the plane and travel. They can host their own live virtual event and, and invite folks there and control a really neat kind of closed experience. And, you know, they can have a podcast like this where their sales teams can host or be guests on and get their thought leadership heard. And it's like you're communicating directly to your customers every minute of the day and it's way more profitable. You know, a lot of big areas you mentioned in, in um, you know, digital transformation, it means different things to different people. When you look at the C-suite, you know, obviously they care about making profitable moves for their company and to support sales. And what better way to, to cut costs than by decreasing as heavy a need to travel and, and, and do trade shows and open up media channels you own that people can access every minute of the day. And it's supporting the sales team with, you know, weapons essentially to communicate more clearly. Well, and the beautiful aspect about that, what you just, that I love is when you go to a trade show, right, it's an event, it's a point in time and it stays there. It's done, it's consumed and it's gone. When you host a digital event, a live event, you record it and it stays in perpetuity. So it's always there. For you, so it's not going to be one of those assets that ages out. Other than the fact that the it's the information ages out. So true, so true. And you know, speaking of aging out, um, you know, it, it, this is a stat that I find absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm sure everybody remembers the juggernaut that Sears was, right? Sears was the bee's knees for decades and decades in the late 60s. Fun fact about Sears, they actually represented, their sales represented 1% of the entire US economy. That's crazy. And think about, the, we were talking about the catalog, right? I, I remember getting the Christmas catalog. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Sears Christmas catalog, so true, right? And, you know, take this juggernaut who basically owned everything. They were Amazon before Amazon was a thing. And then you have, let's, you know, queue up Amazon here in the 90s. They have such a vision to not have the same business model as Sears, but to adopt the digital channel, to adopt the idea of going direct and, and selling right through their own platform. And now that, you know, the tables have turned, right? Sears is non-existent. Amazon is insanely, uh, you know, their growth is just unmeasurably fast and everything that they're doing in so many different markets. So, you know, how is that kind of a lesson for more kind of slower to move industrial B2B companies to the digital side? How is that kind of a lesson where, you know, they could kind of see that they might be disrupted as younger brands are adopting more of the Amazon attitude of going direct if, if they're not doing it themselves? There's a simple rule. Disruption is inevitable. It's a question of who causes it. Do you want to cause it yourself or do you want to have somebody else do it to you? It's your choice. If you don't get on the digital bus, you're dead. That is so true. Would you rather be the disruptor or the disrupted? And I can't tell you the number of business leaders that I've talked to that, um, for lack of a better phrase, ostrich, right? They just stick their head in the sand and they try to pretend that it's going to go away. They, they do what Kodak did. They do what Sears did. Like, oh my goodness, you know, if we can just hang on to our old business model and it's the reality of it is they're just afraid they're they lack the courage to lead their business into the future because they're afraid of the profitability as a percentage versus the profit dollars that are the opportunity so true you know one of the things that i hear you know in this this line of work the most 
is, well, what's the ROI of the media channel is going to be? You know, if we do a live event and, and we adopt a podcast, what what's our expected ROI? And I understand why marketers ask that because they're so used to, you know, advertising campaigns and, and you know, that's a very common question to ask. But, you know, I, I, I kind of think more abstract than that. You know, if you ask Ted Turner uh, when he was forming CNN in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, whenever it was, you know, what's the ROI of CNN going to be? Would he say it's going to be a twenty billion dollar enterprise? You know, would you ask somebody, you know, what's the ROI of our website going to be? All media is our, our new channels to go direct. It's like your website, but it's a more omni-channel approach. And I, I think it's crazy to think, what's the ROI? What, what's the loss of ROI if you don't do this? What if your competitors open up a live event and they invite all your customers and prospects and they're providing an experience when you're waiting for that show to come back or you're waiting for travel to come back? You know, you, you can't win in that in that category. Yeah, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I believe people have um, one of two mindsets. They're either about cost containment and trying to squeeze more juice out of that piece of fruit, right? Or they're about growth and they're trying to build an orchard and get more pieces of fruit. And it's just a question of, you know, what type of leader are you and what type of business are you in? And at the end of the day, the data has proven time and time again, if you focus on growth, you're going to win, right? And so along those lines, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I'm one of those guys that have asked you personally that question, what's my ROI look like on this, right? Now, the reality of it is I know it's the right thing to do in my gut, but I also know I have to go back to other business leaders and say, hey, this is about what I expect it's going to be because they may not believe it in their gut or they, even if they do believe it, they think it's the right thing to ask. Right. And so a lot of times you just got to have the courage to go on and do the right thing and, and make that call. No, de definitely. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, you can see ROI in everything, right? You know, increased traffic, increased leads, uh, you know, partners, new partners closing faster because they're more educated before they talk to your sales rep. You know, uh, you know, because of the the channels and content that they're engaging with. So, yeah, I just always find it kind of a funny question because, in the essence, it really is ROI, and plus, it's ownership, right? It's the idea of owning everything that you do, as opposed to you know renting any sort of exposure. Like a you know, like you said, the trade show days stay there. You, you do it once, you own it forever, and you know you should be tracking ROI over years because of the ownership aspect. Oh, with without a doubt, you have to do that. Right. And, and I think one of the interesting things, there was a, a couple of years ago, there was a guy by the name of Michael Rayner with uh, Deloitte. He did a ton of research on how companies grew and outperformed and, and the ones that didn't. And he came up with three simple rules, right? It was better before cheaper, right? Growth before cost. And there are no other rules. So <laughs> that is good. It's, it's fixed, you know, make sure your quality is there before you try to sell on price and invest in growth. Because if you try and invest or if you focus on a cost line, you're going to lose. And so it's, it's that simple. And, you know, you can try and make whatever excuse you want to be cost focused, or you can try and make whatever excuse you want to say that the market's not shifting. The reality of it is, the shift has already come. It's yes. here.
It's yep. just a question of whether are you going to adapt and drive disruption or are you going to not adapt and be disruptive? Do you want to be Sears and Kodak or do you want to be Amazon and Netflix? So true. And, you know, we, we see it. So we see it in our everyday life. I mean, here's something really timely, right? We're, we're recording this, obviously, in, in the great state of Texas. Uh, did you hear about Matthew McConaughey probably throwing his name in uh, the bid to run for governor? No, but I'm not shocked. <laughs> what what happened? Yeah, he, he there's all. If you just Google Matthew McConaughey, it's all over the place. He's uh, he speculated that he would run, and he hasn't officially said it, but uh, his actions are leading that way. And and you know that because as the speculations came out, and as he talked about the idea of it. Uh, a couple of days later, he launches a YouTube channel, the Matthew McConaughey channel, and he is going to do exactly what we just talked about, create content on a daily basis, publish it on his YouTube channel, allowing his subscribers to get instant access to his brand, his his thoughts, uh, whatever direction he's wanting to communicate. And you see that so true in politics today, right? You look at candidates, you know, if you look back at the, the presidential election, um, you know, Bloomberg, he had this, this, this incredible publishing platform, which is his company, and he spends, I think, $500 million on, on advertising, doesn't win. However, you have these more kind of uh, you know disruptive candidates coming in and disruptive candidates like Matthew McConaughey for governor coming in, and they're going the route of building their own channels to connect. And I, I think that's just a good lesson that you see in the political world of how politicians are winning their campaigns by going direct to their audience as opposed to having to wait for the next, you know, big interview or, or wait for the next, you know, uh, rally that they might put up. So kind of an interesting oh, point. Without a doubt. As a matter of fact, the two previous presidents to, to President Biden, both won because of their ability to go direct, right? Obama won. He figured out social media before anybody else did. Absolutely. And then Trump learned from him and did the same thing, right? And that's they were able to connect with their grassroots supporters and mobilize them because they owned the channel. Exactly. And, and, and B2B can do the same thing, right? Because it's the idea that, yeah, you don't have millions of potential you know, followers, but you do have an audience and that audience has a need for your solution and they're going to work with somebody. So why not be the brand that is found more easily, that educates them more often? And, you know, as you do that, you're going to command the premium price, you know, that you deserve. Now, you know, a big topic, you know, is, is travel is going to come back and, and trade shows are going to come back, uh, especially as the, the vaccination gets distributed more and more, you know, throughout the summer. And I think the term hybrid is going to become huge, a big talking point, the idea of hybrid, you know, how do you see the hybrid model playing out in, in regards to attending trade shows, traveling, but also being able to be found every minute of the day on your digital channels? First off, yes. Hybrid is going to be the fact of life as you go forward. Um, I think people are going to find ways to optimize that, right? There's, it's a proven, I believe it's proven that innovation is easier to drive and create when people are interacting personally, interpersonally, right? In the same room that there's an energy that's fed from that. And so I don't have the data to back that up. I remember reading it somewhere, right? And that and that's played out in my life as well, right? If I need to go innovate or if we need to figure out and tackle some tough problems, it's a lot easier to get people in the room together and work on that. However, productivity 
is much easier if you're remote. If you just want to crank, productivity goes up dramatically when you can focus, put your head down and go. And so I, I think as you look at it going forward, just from a work-life perspective and the way businesses work, I think hybrid's definitely going to be there. Trade shows, that's going to be a wild card. Um, absolutely 100% a wild card from my perspective. My guess is that trade shows, as they play out, you're going to find more uh, vendors that are going to be participating in person and less attendees unless there's a critical mass of attendees of peers where they can interact. Because most of the time, people will attend trade shows from a purchasing standpoint for one of two reasons. Either they're looking to learn from their peers or they're looking to understand or make a purchase decision and interact with particular vendors. Right? That's, that's really the two reasons that they'll go to these trade shows. And so, and I'm willing to bet you could probably come up with a dozen other reasons that people do, but my guess is from a hybrid standpoint, you're going to find more vendors showing up in person and the, the purchasing people, the buyers being much more selective about what events that they go to. So to bring it back, you better darn sure well have a digital presence while at your trade show. You better have a channel. You better be live streaming and recording that and doing your presentations that way so that somebody who's participating from a remote perspective can engage with you. And you better have your chat functionality there and your sales force better be trained up on how to engage people digitally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're going to have to you know, be there. And like you said, broadcast it back to the remote audience and, and let people see you know, what you're promoting. I mean, it's, you can demonstrate your products virtually just like you can in person. So you might as well do both from the show. So Mike, you know, as we finish up here, you know, I, I want the audience to continue to learn from you. You know, let's say that I am a, you know, B2B marketer at a very industrial company and, and I've wanted to digitally transform, but it's a little bit intimidating, right? I, I'm more used to print. I'm more used to advertising. I'm more used to kind of, you know, social media routes. So what are three tips you, you would give that marketer to take those steps towards digitalizing their brand and, and going more direct? So number one, be more courageous. Number two, embrace failure. And number three, make small bets. So what does that mean? Number one, be more courageous. It's you're typically going to be fighting a internal culture that you're going to have to overcome. So I heard somebody say courage doesn't exist if fear isn't there. So chances are, if you're afraid of something, you need to step up your courage game, right? And that's okay. Embrace the fear, embrace the courage, lean into the hard and do it. So then the other thing, don't be afraid of failure. You're going to make mistakes, but the beautiful thing about digital it's, it's an instantaneous fix. I crashed our website by accident the other day, right? It took us two minutes to get it back up. I didn't know how to, but I knew how to get a hold of the right person that could fix it. Um, and, and then last but not least, make small bets. You can test and run that whole notion of A-B testing. You can A-B-C-D-E-F test all you want. And you can make these small bets and then double down on the ones that pay back. Great wisdom. 
Absolutely. And embrace the fear, grow through it, and there's going to be rewards on the other side. You know, I guess the other piece of this, and I didn't I didn't talk about this, but I would say this is probably fourth and, and most important. Develop your own content and develop your own channels. You have to. You've got to own your media and you have to own that distribution path. Because if you don't, you're going to be standing on the sidelines wondering what happened. And I would say that's probably the most critical element. Be the disruptor or be the disrupted. That sums it up. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for jumping on this episode of Scaling Up. You definitely brought the heat. You brought the thought leadership. And I know the audience is going to love learning from you. And anytime you want back, I'd love to have you so people can continue to learn from the Mike McCauley machine. But everybody, I know you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for the next one of Scaling Up. But until then, happy selling and happy growing. Cheers, y'all.